0: At the beginning of investing for people, the early times aren't that, I don't want to say aren't that important, but they'll pale in comparison to how much money they might make in their 50s and 60s once they're fully invested and they've been working for 30 or 40 years. But if you blow them away early on and scare them out of stocks, they won't get, they're going to start rolling CDs and they won't get there. And so it's more important that they understand it is a long-term journey. And that might mean owning less stocks than you would typically do, just so that they understand that that the long-term will work out.
1: Welcome to the Active Advisor Podcast, brought to you by Harbor Capital. Join us as we learn from pros who have helped thousands of investors live better lives. I'm Brian Moore, and I'll be chatting with some of the brightest minds in the financial advisory business, bringing you insights on practice management and investment research that works for advisors and their clients. Joining me today on this episode of the Active Advisor Podcast, we are privileged to have Mick Heyman, a distinguished wealth manager with a remarkable four-decade career in guiding individuals and institutions toward building and preserving wealth. As the founder of Heyman Investment Counseling, Mick has cultivated a stress-free method for harmonizing finances centered around human emotion as the linchpin driving financial markets. His unique approach is reflected in his book, Mellow Your Money which offers a transformative guide to navigating markets with a meditative approach. So stay tuned as we discuss Mick's balanced money mindset, his approach to long-term investing, and how understanding human nature often leads to better outcomes. Welcome Mick, and thanks for joining us. Thank you,
0: Brian. I'm excited to be here and uh, really appreciate the opportunity.
1: We're excited to have you on. So let's dive right in. Typically here on the active advisor, we like to kick the conversation off by asking, What's the first memory you have related to money or investing?
0: When I think about it, the first real memory of diving into investing or this career was an assignment I had, probably one of the first assignments I had when I joined the first firm. And we got a computer in there and nobody knew exactly what to do with it. You know, back then there was no internet. There was no, you had to put in whatever you needed. And so we decided, let's create some charts. Well, how'd you get the data? You had to go, I went to the library and started writing down from old barons. you know, in the back pages, you could get the Fed data and and some other Mm -hmm. things that we could create these charts from. But uh, along with writing the data was looking at the headlines. And so going from the, the late 20s or early 30s and just looking at the headlines every week, I was amazed that every week it seemed like either the world was coming to an end or all was right in the world. And then the next week would happen, and it made me think like this is ongoing. And even what in 1980, of course, the world looked like it was coming to an end. We had high inflation, we had all kinds of, of issues and problems, and gas lines and 15 percent interest rates. And yet, the lesson I learned there was, this too shall pass. That that each week we're going to have, you know, I could look at the, the upcoming weeks when I was looking backwards, but it made it gave me confidence that money moves and lives move. And even though the headlines make it look like the end of the world is coming, that's a bad bet. And so anyway, that's my first memory of kind of diving into this business and getting excited about it.
1: No, that's awesome. I mean, I think it's one of those things for everybody. You always had kind of that seminal moment. And and a lot of people, I think, being able to kind of look back and kind of get into this business before it became fully electronic, before it became, you know, fully, you know, or at least heavily automated is really kind of is, it leads to a more special, in my opinion. Not to demean anybody's different appearance, but it leads to more special kind of intimate relationship with the markets because you really did have to go and dig by hand <laughs> thumb through pages or thumb through the newspaper and everything,
0: and get that education. And I think you know, even though we have a lot of opportunity now to to look at it without going back and, and reading it, it the lesson of learning lessons
1: should not disappear. No, agreed. So let's fast forward from your first memory to today. Can you give us an overview of your journey from where you started your career to where you are today? So I started
0: with a very small investment counseling company managing for for wealthy clients in Cincinnati, Ohio. And back in 1980, stocks were not a popular thing to be working with. You know, this was after a decade of, of the stock market going down or sideways, and it was real estate and gold. And when I got into the career. It was people looked at me like, why would you do that? You know, are you just going to be a salesman or what? And what I loved about it was working with clients and getting to know them and trying to help them. And and that was what was pounded into me from the people I worked with. And over time, I just enjoyed that. But as things go along and you try to take other jobs, I eventually worked with an institutional firm in Louisville, Kentucky, and we managed sometimes hundreds of millions of dollars and even a billion dollars for different institutions. And though it was fun and the money was great, I realized what I loved were the relationships. And sitting in there with a committee of people, I, it, it, you know, yes, you could enjoy that relationship while they were there, but it wasn't the same as helping somebody, you know move through their life and, and seeing how they evolve and how their portfolio evolves. And so when I moved to San Diego, I went back to my roots. And working with individuals and the other thing i found was working for bigger companies eventually you're managing people and there's some people that love that and you get paid more for that sometimes but what i loved was managing the money and helping people grow and so i've kind of kept it to a one-man shop and working with my clients and eventually i wanted to help try to help more people and that led to me writing this book i thought okay i can't take on many more clients But I learned a lot of lessons through my misadventures through the years. And I thought, pass on those. And if somebody learns something, that's fantastic. And so whether it be advisors or individuals or whoever it is, I was hoping that some of my misadventures would lead to help along the way in investing.
1: So unfortunately, I haven't read your book yet, but I promise you I will. It's a lot of reading time here in the next couple of weeks plan. Curious, is there a or was there a pivotal moment uh, from your early career, or even when you were writing the book, because I'm sure you probably had to sit down and, and distill a lot of the things that happened over your, you know, your time in the business up to that point, that really you can point to that helped transform, help your current approach to wealth management.
0: Sure, and actually, it was one of the early clients that I was assigned to, and it wasn't about managing her money; it was it was helping her and her life, mm-hmm. and her parents had become clients back in the '30s imagine you're buying stocks in the 30s and 40s, what they were worth in 1980, the capital gains mm-hmm. were massive. And if you remember also, the capital gain taxes back then were huge relative to what we have today. And so selling those stocks would have been hugely costly, but her objective was income. She was happily in her retirement home. She loved to give money away. We gave her a budget. And so whether those stocks went up or down didn't matter because her objective was income. So one of the lessons there was, pay attention to someone's objective, just because someone might be 80 years old, and you think they shouldn't own all stocks. Well, for this woman, it was perfectly fine. She didn't care. But then the other thing I found was, we couldn't do much. And we, we kind of jokingly called it our, our strategy of benign neglect. Of course, we weren't neglecting her, But her portfolio, we just kind of let run. And at the end of the year, you kind of say, who performed the best? Guess who who it was? It was Eloise, the client. By all this in and out and trading and all this other stuff, most of the time was not adding value. And so it taught me long-term investing means sometimes sitting is your best strategy. And so it was funny when I think of the title here, The Active Advisor, and I'm thinking, active doesn't always mean trading. It doesn't mean do nothing because if you own Xerox at some point, you say, well, that's going away. I need to do something. Or if you have a huge position like Apple, it means trim it a little bit. Don't, you know? Even though it's a great stock, you don't want it to be 25% of your portfolio. So I'm not saying never do anything, but oftentimes it's those long-term stocks that you own where you just, other than trimming, you let it go it be the, the most successful things you do for a client.
1: It definitely sounds like you've kind of transformed into, you know, really re- looking at people and kind of understanding their objectives and kind of taking more of a psychological and philosophical approach to managing their portfolios, which you talk about briefly in the book. How has this unique blend influenced your you know investment strategies for even, say, newer clients?
0: I think the the thing that I've learned is the communication part of our business is huge. And part of that is listening. What is it that might scare that client? Because they might be a young person who comes in and their, their business is growing and, and you think, well, God, they could take all kinds of risk. But just because they can doesn't mean that they psychologically can handle it. And we all know that as much as we'd like to think that we have a crystal ball into the future, we don't. There are surprises that happen all the time that knock this market down. And if the client isn't prepared for it, They're gonna get scared and they're gonna want you to sell right at the time you should be buying. That also was an early lesson that I saw clients who mentally weren't prepared for declines, who completely were panicking, ordering us to sell at the bottom. I was working with an older couple and uh, it was right before the crash in 1987. And they had said, "Well, we're kind of worried, Mick, what would happen if we had a 29 kind of crash? And I went through the numbers with them and they had a low exposure to stocks. And I said, well, the value of your portfolio would probably come down to this, you know, number. Would that be OK? Would, would you you know, continue to live fine? And they said, oh, yeah, yeah. OK, now we don't worry. Well, I should have been thinking there might be a crash. But of course, I wasn't <laughs> predicting that. But the day after the crash, I called them up and they said, well, you were right on, Nick. <laughs> the value of our portfolio is X, Y, Z. And, and you said if it got there, we should be buying. They had strong hands, they realized what could happen, and we were in a, ended up buying stocks for those people. And so that communication, making sure the clients understand the risk that's involved and what might happen depending on, you know, where the stocks are versus their target allocation, that can be the smartest thing you do. Some yeah. of the smartest moves I made were, you know, when the market would run and say you had a 50% or 60% exposure, but because of the market up, it became 55 or 60 you know it was 5 or 10% above and you'd say well that's that's above their target i should cut back it wasn't because of the economy or something i was thinking might happen it was just knee jerk let's move them back to the target that's the safest thing to do and ironically many many times the market would go down and they'd say how did you know i didn't know i was just following the discipline and i think sometimes we try to be too smart with trying to predict the economy or, oh, my God, the risk of this or that. And, and we should just follow the discipline that we have.
1: No, definitely. I mean, I, th- I think this is in, in talking to advisors and, and just being in the business a number of years. I think this is definitely much more of a career field adept to human psychology than it is <laughs> or even philosophy yeah. to a large extent. Um, it is. Some of my
0: favorite writers were philosophical, and luckily, I mean, I was. A, I remember a statistics class I took, and and the fellow was saying, you know, Mick, after the midterm, you know, let's figure out the odds of you passing this class after this score you got. And yeah, you know, my favorite classes were philosophy and psychology, and and uh, I, I didn't know getting into this business how helpful that would be.
1: Yeah, no, it's huge. It's huge. Well, I mean, it's it's, like we said the intro, it's all the linchpin of it all. It's really what kind of, you know, is the backbone and, and, you know, what moves the money around. Can you share an example of how understanding human nature and really kind of, I guess, kind of lifting the veil on that and uh, has allowed you to make better financial decisions?
0: I think that I remember, actually, I tell this story in the book that my uncle Lou used to come in and scare the heck out of us because he was going to pull your ear and give you a noogie. And it was like, say uncle, say uncle. And you didn't want to say uncle, but you felt at some point you you gave in because you were fearful. And I remember the same 87 crash when that happened, seeing a, one of the partners running around having to do something. And, and the, the thing that rang in my head was he's crying uncle. And what happens to all of us, it's not like We're in the business and we know, gosh, after the market declines that long term, it's fine that we know the answer. But if you don't know human nature, that fear that we all get, I mean, we all were afraid during the pandemic. I mean, I think all of us, you know, besides the market going down, the toilet paper and everything else, we didn't know what was going on. But if you know human nature and know that, gosh, the fear I'm I'm feeling right now isn't necessarily I want to sell. That's what the fear is telling you. But I know that fear is not the, the right answer at this moment. If we don't understand ourselves, we're going to give into these pressures. And so that's where the self-awareness and the understanding ourselves and our clients can really help because it's not like we're in the business and we don't feel emotions. We absolutely do. Mm-hmm. We have to just understand what those emotions mean.
1: So we've talked a little bit about obviously understanding human psychology and, and philosophy approach, but you mentioned also something that I found interesting that I think really kind of gets forgotten in this you know fifteen second life cycle that that news and, and media currently has this barrage with. Longer term investing, kind of being able to not necessarily, for lack of a better word, kind of you know give in to the panic and give in to the fear. And and take a step back, and cooler heads will prevail eventually. And in doing that, capitalizing on that short-term knee-jerk reaction, how is this long-term approach to help you navigate? You know, I guess the emotional and market gyrations. I think understanding that uh, you
0: know these headlines, whether they be financial headlines or headlines, you know, on you know something else going on in the world or whatever, there to to sell clicks or to sell papers mm-hmm. or in the old days, and to realize that just doesn't have to impact what we're doing for people. And the problem is that we get sucked in. And in the old days, there was one show on investments during the week, Wall Street week. You know, Louis Rukeyser would get mm-hmm. on there. And, and other than that, there they might be at the end of the news that give you a st- couple of stock quotes, but it just didn't impact. But people were still impacted by headlines. And to realize that what's going on day in and day out really gets you know over time it gets washed away but one thing that hits me is that someone was asking me what about all this computer trading and all this short term stuff and all this potential manipulation that goes on how can the average investor deal with that and the answer is to me you don't that in, in fact if there if the market goes down because of some wacky inflation news for the short-term investor, that might be terrible because they're trading the thing. But for the long-term investor, you say, oh, Apple now dropped 30%. This is a chance for the, you know, the you know, new client to get in there. I, you know, I don't, I can use this, the short-term gyrations that get affected can actually benefit the long-term investor. And so, you know, the, the people that are so worried that computer trading is taking over, all that does is sometimes add to the volatility that the long-term investor can take advantage of and the market goes crazy because uh, on the upside for something, all of a sudden your exposure is is too high, well, you cut back a little bit. And you know, at some point that volatility will take that stock right back down again. And so I think that by being long-term, you can actually take advantage of all the the issues and problems that short-term people worry about.
1: No, it definitely can. I mean, I think it's one of those things. That's what you do on the advisor side, but what advice do you, or kind of how do you, If you're approaching a younger couple, what advice would you give to them by not feeling overwhelmed by all the the content that's out there?
0: I think the important thing is to share and communicate with them that that short term, the short term issues out there will cause volatility. You know, it's too often we say, well, look at what stocks can do over the long term and or look what bonds are and whatever. And this is a 60-40 portfolio and, you know, over 10 years or 20 years, you know it's going to achieve this or that and the young couple nods and says oh sounds good but then that you know that the next thing that happens something happens and they're and they're mad and they're scared and i think it's really important to share the downside with people so they understand and and maybe the young couple is better off with 30 or 40% in stocks at first
2: mm-hmm. just
0: to get their feet wet and that's the thing that you've got to understand their psychology because at the beginning of of investing for people The early times aren't that, I don't want to say aren't that important, but they'll pale in comparison to how much money they might make in their 50s and 60s once they're fully invested and they've been working for 30 or 40 years. But if you blow them away early on and scare them out of stocks, they won't get, they're going to start rolling CDs and they won't get there. And so it's more important that they understand it is a long-term journey. And that might mean owning less stocks than you would typically do Mm-hmm. just so that they understand that that the long-term will work out.
1: Excellent advice. The trader in me wanted to say, how do you convince people that reversion to the mean is real? And you just basically kind of have to hug the mean. But that's where I kind of like, no, it's not really. It doesn't translate well. <laughs> unless, you, <laughs> unless you did take that statistics course in college. Yeah, yeah, I, It was so funny. I would have been like, you know, nickel around zero. That's probably the chance of me passing this course because I remember I had a, had a fun time with that one as well. <laughs> Back to today. In your book, uh, mill Your Money, you emphasize the importance of a balanced money mindset. Now we've talked about kind of getting people comfortable with stocks and getting people comfortable around, you know, having a longer term philosophy and and, and not being engaged by the news. Could you elaborate on this kind of balanced money mindset approach and how it contributes to financial success?
0: Sure. And I think one thing that that popped in my head as part of the balanced mindset is that know what you own. I think Mm -hmm. so often as managers... We you know say well you want to you know have so much in the S and P five hundred index and these other ETFs or mutual funds and we set them up for clients and we forget that they actually benefit from knowing what's in those funds what's in the S and P five hundred index because when those funds go down and invariably you get a correction and all they see is IVV or whatever this you know that index is that doesn't help. But if they see, oh, it's Microsoft and Apple and Procter & Gamble and Colgate and and Eli Lilly, and then, oh, okay, these are great companies. And so know what you own. And the other thing is don't always buy into these, I want to say, these portfolio management studies and just knee jerk, well, they ought to have 30% in international and 10% in emerging. And and look inside those funds and really decide, is this what I want to own for people? Some of those international funds have 20, 25 percent in financial stocks. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, you're maybe doing what you think is diversification, but is that the place you want that people to be when, when times are tough? And uh, I I I I don't want to jump on international, but even looking back in history and you say, Why do people think international is such a diversifier? Well, there were four or five years in the 80s where Japan took over the world. I mean, it you know, it was. Dominating, and, and if you look at the statistics, the returns of international funds are dominated by those years. And so, you know, use, in other words, use our, our perspective and know if the technology fund has, you know, 25% in Apple and 25% in Microsoft, that might be okay. But don't just buy it because it's a tech fund you know, know what's inside those funds and make sure your clients understand what's in them. And so that they are, they're partners with you and that they have not a, not only a balanced portfolio, but they understand what that balance is.
1: Well, You bring up a lot of great points there. I think that's one of the things that really helping anybody whether it be, you know, mom and pop or, you know, a young couple, young individual or even an institution, do that is really kind of key to helping them take that next step and they're you know, managing their money and expectations. As somebody who's worked with both institutional portfolios and individual investors, love to hear a little bit more, like how do you look at each portfolio differently? How do you work with both of those different client sets?
0: So a lot of it comes back to expectations. When the institution says, uh, we're hiring you to manage a stock portfolio, and we've got five other managers or 10 other managers or whatever it is, pay attention to that assignment. And it's you might be afraid that the market's going down and maybe it just had a great year or whatever, but that's not your decision as an advisor to make. And I think too often advisors say, well, I'm going to add value doing this or that. And listen to the assignment that you've got. And so with institutions, we were very careful to make sure if it was an intermediate bond portfolio that was high quality, that means don't try to add value with some risky, low quality bond. Pay attention to that assignment because invariably things will go against you and you want to be sure that you go back and you say, if you're a value investor, this, this happened to a lot of people back in the internet, you know, in the internet heyday of the late 90s. Value investing suffered. Mm -hmm. And so how could they keep up? Well, they'd start buying some technology stock. And well, it's kind of a value because it's 60 times earnings instead of 100 or something. But when things went awry and the the institution is saying, well, thank God we've got the value investor here. Well, if they weren't following the assignment, that was not helping. Mm -hmm. And so with the institutions, I think pay real close attention to what, what your assignment is and stay true to it. And with individuals, it's a little of both. Understand the assignment, but the communication is becoming more, that that to me is more important because the, the institution typically has a consultant. With an individual, oftentimes you as an advisor are that consultant. You're playing two roles. First, you're trying to understand psychologically what is best for that client and then stay true to that. Don't say, well, they could take a little more risk and maybe we'll buy this little crypto fund or something. Be sure they understand. Or if they ask, gosh, I want to take a little risk here. Understand that, you know, three to five percent of that portfolio, if, if they really want to understand what can happen to, to a risky investment, you know, sometimes it's better to let them do it. And it won't, a little bit won't hurt them. And sometimes that lesson that they learn or if it works out, then you're a partner in it. So really listening to those clients is, is, is so important, but you have more power with the individual
1: client to kind of help guide them. No, oh, that's great. That's great insight. And thank you very much. So here in closing at Harbor, we're firm believers in active management, though it's important to acknowledge that every financial expert has their own unique perspective. From your perspective, where have you observed active management making the most significant difference? I think it's staying true
0: to, to the client's objectives. And that that oftentimes, as I said earlier, uh, sitting should be part of the active decision. To, you know, allowing those long-term investments to to grow. Maybe in spite of what you think can happen. You know, when you first bought Apple, you know, to, to think that when it, after it tripled that it could keep going like it has may not have been an expectation, but it was a possibility. So allow the long term to benefit, and don't exclude sitting as part of being active. You know, I, I, as I've said earlier, I think cutting back and keeping, you know, the trimming, you know, and, and making sure your client's targets are are met—that's part of our role as being active advisors.
1: But sometimes, doing nothing is the best thing to do, and and that's an active decision. It is. No, I couldn't I couldn't agree with you more. I think one of the things that, in talking to a lot of different advisors, you find out really more eye-opening ways on what active really means. And and you know, we've had a couple of people on and say, you know, active and passive, they're both active. And, and you really start to understand the the psychology behind it all, that you're always making an active decision. Everything is active about your portfolio exactly it's the or a So that's great. No, that's great insight. Great to hear from you today. Last but not least, what's the best way for people to find you?
0: The best way is is my book website, the uh, www.mellowyourmoney.com, or if you want to email Mick at Mellow Your Money, I'd love to chat with people, and I'm always, whether it's advisors or clients, I'm always happy to chit chat and share ideas.
1: Uh, that's great, and please, everybody, go check it out, and I, as will I. So. Let me know when you're ready, but we want to do what I you know is my favorite part of the segment, which is I call the lightning round. However, it's actually called 60 seconds with McHaman. Uh, let me know when you're ready. I'm ready and excited to give it a shot. Nickname.
0: Nick. Hobby. I love surfing.
1: Hidden talent. Juggling. If you could go anywhere for just five minutes, where would you go? I'd love to see the ball If you could meet any historical figure, who would it be? Mark Twain. What's the best professional advice you've ever received? Learn lessons.
0: From your misadventures, from your mistake, sometimes difficult people learn lessons
1: and it never stops. Favorite ice cream flavor? Chocolate. Most adventurous thing you've ever done? Rock climbing. Best part of your job? The people that I work with. I love the relationships. Profession, if you weren't in finance? Author. What advice would you give your younger self?
0: Don't worry about the stumbles that you make. It will only lead to growth in your life. And,
1: More important for advisors to be good listeners or good investors? Good listeners. Favorite way to get active? Surfing. Whether you're a seasoned advisor or just getting started, the Active Advisor brought to you by Harbor Capital offers professional insights for the financial advisor community. Visit us at harborcapital.com to learn more. And don't forget to subscribe to The Active Advisor on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts to stay up to date on investment trends, tried and tested research methods, and what your industry peers are up to. From all of us at Harbor Capital, thanks for tuning in.
2: And now for important disclosures. This material is for informational purposes and is not intended to be relied upon as a forecast, research, or or investment advice and is not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any securities or adopt any investment strategy. The opinions expressed are as of 16th of November 2023 and are subject to change. The opinions expressed by the speakers do not necessarily represent the views of Harbour Capital Advisors, Inc., The information and opinions contained in this material are derived from proprietary and non-proprietary sources deemed by Harbour Capital Advisors Inc. to be reliable and are not necessarily all-inclusive and are not guaranteed as to accuracy. This material may contain forward-looking information that is not purely historical in nature. Such information may include, among other things, projections and forecasts, There is no guarantee that any of these views will come to pass. This material may not be representative of the experience of other individuals. Reliance upon information in this material is at the sole discretion of the viewer. This material is not legal, tax or accounting advice. Please consult with a qualified professional for this type of advice. Investing involves risk, including the risk of loss. Specific companies and issuers are mentioned for educational purposes only and should not be deemed a recommendation to buy or sell any securities. Any companies mentioned do not necessarily represent current or future holdings of any investment products. Harbour Capital Advisors Inc. does and may seek to do business with companies covered in this podcast. As a result, listeners should be aware that the firm may have a conflict of interest that could affect the objectivity of this podcast. This material is prepared by Harbour Capital Advisors, Inc. Harbour Capital Advisors, Inc. is not affiliated with Payment Investment Counseling, LLC. All trademarks or product names mentioned herein are the property of their respective owners. Copyright 2023, Harbour Capital Advisors, Inc. All rights reserved.